Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and I'm joined today by Thomas Donnelly, member of Hoover's Military History Working Group and director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He is the author of the historical backgrounder in the newest issue of Strategica, which tackles the subject of drones. So, Tom, the, the question at the heart of this issue is what ultimate significance drones have, whether they represent a fundamental change in the way that we conduct warfare or if they're simply a new technology that fits pretty cleanly into the existing paradigms that we have. And one of the points that you make clear from the get-go of this piece is that there is a a long history, uh, one in fact stretching back almost as far as human flight itself, of alarmism that is associated with with the use of air power. Walk us through some of that history and give us a sense of why this has so consistently been a source of anxiety. Uh, well, you could probably even uh, trace a similar uh, kind of response to many new technologies that have uh, changed the conduct uh, of war, or at least the, the tactical and technological framework in which uh, uh, war plays itself out. Uh, but you're quite right. Um, the addition of flying machines uh, to the list of, of weaponry uh, really produced, particularly in the early 20th century, um, really a quite analogous kind of uh, almost hysteria um, to what we see today with uh, unmanned aerial systems and other forms of uh, of drones. Fundamentally, the idea was that um, attack was now uh, going to have um, uh, unfettered advantages over defense, and that the consequences would be uh, just uh, unbearably terrible, both in sort of a horrific way, but in, a, in the sense of being uh, even more destructive or potentially more destructive. So that's where we're at a hundred years ago, say. the you know, the early development of, of aerial warfare. And then as we look at, at today, um, there have been some changes in, in attitudes about the use of technology uh, on the battlefield. G- give us a sense of, of where drones fit in the context of the, the American military over the past few decades. There is a phrase that, to, to this layman anyway, seems to have considerably less currency than it did maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but is still prevalent, this idea of the revolution in military affairs. Uh, unpack that concept for us, how it's played out over the past couple of decades, and how drones relate to that. Well, the origin of the phrase goes back uh, really to the late years of the Cold War, but it really uh, gained currency in the late 1990s and in actually to the pre-9-11 days of the Bush administration. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld returned to the Pentagon to be the Secretary of Transformation, as it was called. And the idea was that he was going to implement and enforce uh, the tenets of this revolution in military affairs, and particularly the idea that long-range precision strikes uh, were going to be uniquely effective. Uh, However, that project ran afoul of the attacks of 9-11 and uh, the the need to conduct the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, which were in some senses a hybrid. They were the most technologically advanced campaigns in human history, but it didn't 
obviate the need to put boots on the ground to do population-centric counterinsurgency and so on and so forth. The, the counterinsurgency force that we had used a heck of and is a counterterrorism force, uh, employed drones of all sorts uh, in almost a profligate way, uh, but it was for the purpose of magnifying the effects of connection with the Iraqi and Afghanistan populations and ferreting out uh, terrorists and irregular groups. So we employed the technologies, but in a way that was almost mm -hmm. antithetical to the original uh, revolution in military affairs uh, conception. It enabled close combat. It did not remove the need for close combat. Right, and, and one of the points that you make in this piece is how dramatically drones have changed over the past decade or so, both how they've been used and, and how they've been designed. What have been the, the major developments there? Well, and again, the interesting thing is that the practice went very much against the theory. Uh, the, the drones that we've bought, particularly the best-known ones, the Reaper and the Predator are the ones that we always see the videos of, uh, destroying terrorist pickups or tracking a terrorist target uh, into a house um, only to see the house uh, then explode are not the kind of long-range, sophisticated, uh, unmanned systems uh, that were originally imagined. They're more like updates uh, of the original drones, say, that the Israeli Defense Force used. Really low-cost aircraft, uh, beginning with pretty basic, uh, you know, television video cameras on them and then some uh, infrared or low-light capabilities and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and so the idea was to flood the field with these eyes in the sky. And in many ways, we bought everything that was available almost commercially. It's like we went to the model airplane store and the video store. <laughs> A bunch of guys in their garages. I mean, these now turn out to be uh, huge billion-dollar businesses. It also leaves us with a, a giant fleet of drones that's not necessarily well suited to other missions. So right. we, well, you, you mentioned in the piece, yeah. this is interesting, for, for all the hype about drones and, and all the media attention that they get, because the, the broader public doesn't usually hear the conversation about where they fit into our long-term needs. Correct. And you talk about the fact that we've built these assets according to the needs of the wars we've been engaged in over the past decade or so, but that going forward there's a danger of what you call it an unbalanced fleet. Explain that. Um, uh, exactly so. I mean the U.S. military is a global force, has to respond to a whole range of potential scenarios, uh, you know, from the low-end, irregular uh, warfare that's been prevalent over the last decade to the most challenging conventional and even uh, uh, nuclear kinds of situations that have much uh, in common with the Cold War and in particular are shaped by the kinds of military modernization that the Chinese uh, have adopted. Uh, and, and to put it in simple terms, the Chinese are trying to push us back and force us out of the waters, the skies, and even the space uh, that's close to them. These are places that we're kind of used to owning and operating in uh, quite freely. 
And of course, um, even the most sophisticated drone aircraft uh, require satellite links, uh, huge amounts of uh, communication to send back the data that the sensors are gathering and so on and so forth. Now, of course, that's never reckoned into the cost accounting, but it's actually a really complex system. So we have the, a, a huge fleet of these pretty inexpensive and simple aircraft that could never survive in a modern air defense environment. And we have relatively few uh, sort of high-end drones that are stealthy flying vehicles that, have, that are larger to be able to carry more and to fly longer across the kinds of distances that one finds in the Pacific. And that might be of use uh, to collect the kind of data we would need uh, in an East Asian scenario or, say, in Iran. People may remember that one of these high-end aircraft uh, crashed uh, uh, in Iran a couple of years ago. Uh, so those are really expensive planes with a lot of sophisticated stuff on them. And so we have relatively few of them. And we have a you know, sort of used car lot full of Predators and deepers. <laughs> so is, is there a danger, whether amongst the civilian leadership or the military leadership, maybe even in terms of public perception, is, is there a danger in your judgment that uh, we've perhaps succumbed a little, a little too much to the hype where drones are concerned? I mean how much – I guess the question is how much utility do they really represent for us going forward? How, how much can you rely on them for, for these kinds of operations? Well, I think they're particularly useful in these low-end missions uh, where there's not much of an air defense threat, and it will be more difficult right. to use them, and we will have to find other ways to use them, say, um, as kind of a dog sled team in, uh, in harness to a manned aircraft, a stealthy manned aircraft that would have line-of-sight communications to more sophisticated drones and then could use them to carry extra weapons, to carry extra sensors, and so on and so forth, uh, but in a way that would, um, you know, sort of be slaved, if you will, to a more traditional the F-22 or F-35 or some manned aircraft. There is also the sort of rebound danger that because irregular warfare is no longer you know, popular, we're trying to end the wars that we're in. And of course, uh, as we have promised ourselves many times before, we'll never, ever, ever get involved in another conflict in the Middle East. Right, right. There's also a danger that we'll sort of go to the other extreme, get rid of all these very useful aircraft just because we're not flying them every day and don't need them every day concentrate on the sophisticated, sexy stuff, uh, and then when uh, reality turns out to be different than we would like it to be, or that we need to, say, uh, keep an eye on the kinds of terrorist and uh, insurgent networks that you, say, find in West Africa, where those kinds of cheap, expendable uh, drones would be really, really useful to survey those vast expanses, those are the things we will have mothballed or put in the shredder or just otherwise gotten rid of. 
the final question that I'll put to you, one of the one of the major criticisms of drones that you hear quite a bit is sort of a broader psychological or I guess on some level even sociological one. The idea that they make war too clean, too antiseptic, that you've got some kid having what's essentially a video game experience in Nevada, blowing someone to hell in Pakistan, and that this inevitably dehumanizes or at least further dehumanizes war. Does that strike you as a significant concern? It, it doesn't. Um, that's been the trend of technology, you know, since we moved from spears and swords uh, to arrows to, you know, firearms, uh, so on and so forth. And while it's still necessary on occasion to get up close and personal in order to be effective, um, that's a very unforgiving kind of warfare. Um, uh, and it's sort of unclear whether exposure to extreme violence and slaughter is a humanizing thing. Right. Um, so the, you know, the counter argument has some logical holes in it. Um, but it, in fact, I think the pattern is exactly the, the opposite. The ability to control these technologies um, gives us actually an opportunity to uh, think twice. You know, many times uh, a military lawyer is involved before the trigger is pulled on a drone strike. So it's actually, I mean, in practice, it's been an opportunity to reduce the level of violence, make it more discriminating, and to probably civilize the rules of engagement in many ways that are irritating to soldiers and, and pilots, we pass up many opportunities to kill bad guys because we're worried about collateral damage. We would never have had the discretion to do so if the technology didn't exist. Uh, and I would say the sort of statistical and anecdotal evidence is mm -hmm. that these technologies have made the conduct of war more civilized, more regulated, and uh, have kept us farther away from the kinds of um, close quarter violence that's uh, naturally more dominated by, uh, you know, sort of irrational uh, human urges than uh, more reflective and, and rational decision making. All right, Tom, thank you, and thanks as ever to our listeners. My guest has been Thomas Donnelly, a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group and director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. You can read his essay and all those in our newest issue by visiting hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening. <laughs>